that are beneficial to plants. And because North Carolina is so diverse, we are an area of 53, almost 54,000 miles. And because the land goes from sea level at, at the ocean front, uh, where we've got the, the sandy plain, up through the Piedmont that's rolling, that goes um, up to about 300 feet elevation, all the way up to Mount Mitchell, which is the highest mountain east of the Mississippi, at 
that that's one of the main reasons so many people, when they, when families were choosing where to go, that was one of the reasons they came to Carolina is because he described all these plants and animals and native peoples, and he wrote about it so beautifully. It inspired them to come. One of the things I know that he did, I, I want you have to let me kibitz a little bit here, was he got hooked up with the Swiss who had shown up at what we now call Newburn. Newburn. And uh, mm-hmm. the Baron de Graffenried, and, uh, and, and actually it ultimately resulted in his death, but uh, they they were looking, they were going up, I believe, the Neuse River, either the Neuse or the Trent, it has to be one of those, uh, to try to find some land that they thought would be good for good for settlements. And, uh, and uh, one of your contemporaries, uh, since you're a writer, uh, Pam, a, a man named Scott Hewler, has written a book where he retraces Lawson's journey in present day. And uh, He walked friend, it, didn't he? Pardon me? Didn't he walk it also? Yes, he uh, walked uh, He didn't walk every mm-hmm. foot of it, but he walked as much of it as he could without getting run right. over on the highways. And, <laughs> and the gentleman whose name you told me the other day, I have his book on, on a table about 20 feet from where I'm sitting, uh, who does nature programs for Channel 4. Um, uh, Anyway, he, uh-huh. Yeah, he, he did a, a a television version of the journey, too, that one can see. Mm-hmm. So John Lawson is an important man. In fact, a couple of years ago, he was admitted to the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame. I don't know if you knew that or not. But, uh, I didn't, uh, but it, it makes sense because his um, New Voyage to Carolina has been regarded as a classic of early American literature. It's one of the, the first descriptions. Of, of this land, and uh, particularly of um, going from South Carolina. And, and at that time, by the way, all of it was called Carolina. There was not that, that line of north and south. So, and and um, for what the people in England knew, it might have been the moon. You know, they, they, right. they, <laughs> right. they, they well, didn't know what the people looked like. You know, they were, there were all these stories about monsters and, uh, and unusual animals and well, and they were, because um, if you think about some of the things that he saw that no one had ever seen before that they, he could then write about and describe, um, people found him fantastic. And that's one reason why um, people who came after him, like, um, like John Bartram, uh, that naturalist, and, and um, he, he, was, he was in so much demand because... People in Europe were eager to get their hands on these new plants. They wanted to see what they were. They wanted to grow them. They were looking for um, new spices. That's the whole reason that everybody decided to come to this country anyway, initially was looking for the spice route. But but to look for new plants, to look for the, the new and the exotic. Uh, no one had seen a magnolia grandiflora. No one had seen our, our native tulip poplars. They were, they were fascinated by these descriptions of these plants. And at this time when they were, these were virgin forests, they, they were huge. And um, to, to be able to write about all this and share it, then there became the demand. And so John Bartram, who lived up in, um, in Philadelphia area, and he had um, a plant nursery of his own, he was a contemporary of Benjamin Franklin and a good friend of his. He 
he was sharing a lot of plants with people not only in this country but in England. He was shipping things over back and forth. And in um, 1765, Bartram was a newly appointed botanist to King George III. Can I stop you there? We need to stop somewhere yeah. and take a break. Okay. We've got a John Bartram, King George III. We know about right where we are, and we're going to come back and continue right from there. A little botanical history of the Carolinas, and particularly of North Carolina, and what made it or allowed it to continue to be the fairest land, the goodliest land, I think you said, goodliest. under the cope of heaven. Pam Beck is our guest tonight, and we'll be back with Pam in just a couple of minutes. CTF, Tom Kearney here on a Wednesday night, talking about something that I love to hear. I love to hear people talk about, about cars and, 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 and about plants. I always have this dream that my thumb will turn out to be green and not black, but in any event, uh, it's just like cookbooks. I don't cook a lot, but I like to read cookbooks. And I like to hear Pam Beck talk about plants because she makes them understandable. And she's been taking us on a little historical tour of the early days of Carolina, uh, because as she pointed out, until I think until 1729 or somewhere along in there, Carolina was called just that. And then that's when they started talking about North Carolina and South Carolina. And that's where we are now. We've talked about, I'm, I'm resuming here, Pam, Pam, John Lawson and John Bartram, and uh, we're into the 18th century now. Yeah, we're still, um, what's interesting is John Bartram had a son named William, and William um, moved to uh, around the Cape Fear area, believe it or not. He was down near um, White Lake in Bladen County, and um, he was living on property that had belonged to his grandfather, who he, whom he was named for. Anyway, John was coming down on a trip to Florida at the... Uh, on a plant expedition, and he stopped by and picked up his son, William, along the way, said, let's go down and, and do some plant exploring. And that's when William Bartram did, in 1773, he did his famous travels. And this is outlined in a book called Travels Through North and South Carolina, Georgia, etc. I think that's hilarious. I love all these that have really long titles. But it ended up being published in 1791, and that book got such a fine reception, again, from people looking at the drawings that Bartram had done and his descriptions of plants, that he, as a Quaker, was admitted to um, the uh, international literary and scientific community. It was, a, it was a big step forward for William Bartram, who up to that point had not done a whole lot. And so um, this, it, was, it was a father and son who went through the Carolinas and, and uh, did some exploring. It was their writings that helped um, also John Lawson and then the Bartrams that helped another explorer become very interested. And, you know, Elizabeth Lawrence, who was one of our great uh, women garden writers, once said, you know, no one gardens alone. Well, no one really does all this plant exploring alone either because all of these people have influenced each other with their, uh, with their writings. The uh, next one I'd love to mention is Andre Michaud. And Michaud was a French botanist and explorer. And he had uh, trained in agriculture, but he had a passion for the new, the rare, and the exotic. So he came to South Carolina 
um, again in Charleston in 1787 and made it his headquarters to start collecting plants for France. Now, remember that I had mentioned that John Bartram was collecting plants on behalf of the King of England. Well, here is Michaud over here um, collecting plants, and he started uh, about 1787 going out and noticing the botanical bounty, uh, bounty of the Appalachians, and he made at least five visits to Western North Carolina. And he followed the route taken by William Bartram, which I think is, is so interesting. Again, one influencing the other. But he went from Georgia, he went up the French Broad, he went all over um, following the Catawba up into Burke County in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Now, he also went down into Florida and, and other places too. But the, his last trips to the North Carolina uh, mountains were made between 1794 and 1795. And this is when he went to Grandfather Mountain, what we were just talking about, and um, also found Mount Mitchell. And um, he was so happy when he climbed the summit of Grandfather Mountain, which he thought was the highest mountain of all North America. He and his guide sang, um, sang hymns and cried, Long live America and the French Republic, long live liberty. He was just overcome with the beauty of the area and the freedom and, and what all he found. But he was the one who then published his writings, and then they became popular and influenced other people who came after him. So well, now, I want to stop you for a second. Yeah. I always have calls from listeners who say, well, she was talking about that Grandfather Mountain place. Where is that? So we need to tell our listeners that Grandfather Mountain is just slightly southwest of, of Boone, North Carolina, and uh, on the ridge going south. But it's in the northern part of the of the, the mountains. Right. The North it's Carolina so mountains, beautiful. Right? It's so beautiful up in that neck of the woods, too. This is, this is just really um, an incredible, incredible, uh, diverse area. In fact, one of the rarest plants in North Carolina is in the Toxaway area, and it's Shortia, which is called Oconee Bell. And um, it was not found again from the 1790s. It was not found again. It was thought to be completely extinct until Dr. Asa Gray, who was the director of the Harvard Arnold Arboretum, he was rediscovered a big yeah, very big deal. <laughs> yeah, now, big well, deal. he was one of the, the people that was involved with the dis argument over Darwinism and things like that. So. Right. Yes, and he was a um, he was a protege of Sargent, um, who went before him. And Dr. Asa Gray rediscovered the Oconee Bells in 1877. And but one of the biggest contributions Michaud probably made is that he discovered. Ginseng, Native American, what they call sang in the mountains. And it's a plant valued by the Chinese for its medicinal qualities. And the locals could find this in the mountains and harvest it and sell it at great cost. So this is something that, um, that they made quite a living off of. And some areas they still do. So it's, it's fascinating to know that these plants 
that had never been Pam, described. Pam, hold on. We're slipping yeah. up on the, the news now. If John is really good at this, he'll be able to get CBS News on for us right now. Apologize to you for cutting you off so quickly there, but the truth was I was trying to train my eye on the clock and finding out that we were just about to be in time for the news, and I was so interested in what you were saying that I got distracted. But uh, we Well, I'm glad I'm entertaining you. <laughs> you. You are indeed, and I'm sitting here waiting. The, the, the azalea shows up in the mountains of North Carolina, doesn't it? Right. Yes. I think I eat the girl the azalea queen or something like that. And, <laughs> Of course, the other thing that shows up in the mountains that uh, uh, Mr. Graham, uh, the former Commissioner of Agriculture, used to talk about and other people is the ramp, and you know what that is. Yeah, ramps are, are something, again, that's an edible wildflower that, that people are very fond of. But, you know, it, there's so many of these great plants in our, in our state have been used um, for not only eating but dyeing colors, um, for, um, you know, profit. At one time we had, before the blight, of course, lots of chestnuts, uh, walnuts. The wood has been extremely valuable. A lot of the great fleet of England and the grand houses there were built of oak that was harvested in North Carolina, the great straight lodgepole pines, all those kinds of things that were used and taken and and it was very valuable, uh, the plants that were here native. But one thing I want to share with you that's going to tie you back, you started this program talking about B.W. Wells, the great late professor. And um, in the introduction to the revised edition of his book, Lawrence Early writes, and I quote this, this is great, on the small shelf of classic text on the natural history of North Carolina, B.W. Wells's the Natural Gardens of North Carolina keeps company with such 18th century evergreens as John Lawson's A New Voyage to Carolina, Mark Catesby's Natural History of Florida, Carolina, the Bahama Islands, and William Bartram's Travels. And unlike them, the Natural Gardens is still an astonishingly useful guide. So that's the difference of here we are going into the 20th century with a local professor, a wonderful man. Um, Dr. Wells came to North Carolina State uh, to be chairman of the botany department in 1919. And that job he held until 1949. The man had a long, happy career here. And he absolutely fell in love with the state. And he was a young man. He was only 35 years old. But when he came to North Carolina State University, he already had national and international reputation because he had studied insect galls. Now, a gall is this big swollen thing that you see on leaves of plants that are caused by insects. Well, he remarked that about the year after his arrival, he was taking a train trip down to Wilmington. And that was the most reasonable way to travel back then. And on a view outside his window changed his life. And I love what he wrote. He wrote, out of the railroad car window, I saw a vast flat area literally covered with wildflowers. He, recle he recollected this years later. I immediately made up my mind to see it again. I became convinced there was no such area of equal size and perfection 
with over 100 species of herbaceous wildflowers blooming in profusion from late February to middle December. And what he was talking about is the big savanna. It's a 1,500-acre treeless wetland near Burgall. And he was so smitten with that that he switched his, his line of study. Up to this point, he had looked at galls on leaves. And all of a sudden, he started looking at the plants, and he wanted to know all of them. And he wanted to know why they grew in communities together and why a plant that you might find down around, say, Wilmington, growing natively as a wildflower, like Gallardia, which is a blanket flower that you find down there, you don't find it growing in Raleigh. And why some of the mosses and the ferns that are in Raleigh, you won't find in Hickory, North Carolina. And what he did is he realized that plants collected in communities where the conditions were perfect for them, but they also had a symbiotic relationship and they helped each other. For instance, where there's um, pines that have to have fire in order to reproduce that the wildflowers under there that survive are wildflowers that can tolerate that kind of fire and still come back from deep roots, whereas that wouldn't work in a grassland-type area. Now, can, so, can, can you tell me one thing here? That I, I, you mentioned Lawrence early a little bit earlier, and it made me think about pine trees. Uh, I think he's written a book about pines, the loblolly pine. And you were talking about the, the, the stuff up in the mountains that uh, the British thought was pretty pretty good because it, it brings some cash. Well, they love those pine trees and all that tar and turpentine and everything. Mm -hmm. But but it, was it near these plant families where all these flowers were, you know, the savanna? Or was yes, it, in the uh, savanna. The, the pines that we, the longleaf pine, the, the loblolly pines, the white pines, and things like that are perfect for turpentine. And, in fact, they're grown commercially now. Um, they're farmed. At one time, it was just these were just big groves, um, forests of these growing naturally. But now they're farmed all the way down the, the southeastern coast. Uh, where Mike grew up in South Georgia, it was, uh, it was definitely turpentine country down there because they could grow these pines. They would grow fast and furious, and they could harvest them very easily. Well, that's why the, the British did not want North Carolina to, to leave. And I saw a thing on, on public television recently about Brunswick County and mm -hmm. how at one time they had a one of the biggest ports in North America, and it was designed to export just what we're talking about, pine, uh, tar, uh, turpentine, what the British would need to build ships. Right. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I... No, 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 no. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's a very important. It's all connected, and, and part of what drew so many people to come here was looking for ways to make a living off of things like harvesting trees or um, grow, growing uh, indigo. There was a, a big uh, push to, to grow what they call false indigo, which is a baptisia. Um, that it was supposed to be an indigo dye substitute, and it looks great when you first dye clothes with it, but unfortunately, the first time you wash them, all the blue comes out. So that <laughs> ended up oh. being a failure. Um, there was the big fiasco with the mulberries, trying to grow mulberries to grow the silkworms, you know, here. You know where they tried to do that, don't you? It was Just here. about where you live. Yeah, yeah. It was Waterway County was, was mm -hmm. supposed to be. 
to well, it? Well, it, it was even more widespread than that. There's a large tree, a large old mulberry tree that may be a remnant of that, um, still left in Nancy Goodwin's uh, garden at Montrose in Hillsborough. And um, a lot of that was uh, taken down to Alabama, and they even tried to grow down there. One of Mike's ancestors got caught up in it's it's like one of those get rich quick type schemes that you hear about sometimes, right. <laughs> and, right. and that was one of them. Um, I did want to go back to somebody else who you had mentioned earlier too, and I love how all these people are connected. Is um, the dear dear late Doctor C. Ritchie Bell? Uh, you had started off the program talking about his book and how important that is. For anybody who's new to this area, um, please look for Wildflowers of North Carolina. The original uh, book was written by um, Dr. Bell with um, a couple of his other uh, co cohorts, but uh, William Justice and uh, C. Richie Bell. But the second edition, if you can find that, that is one by Justice Bell and um, Dr. Bell's uh, wife, Ann Lindsay. Uh, they, they all contributed to that, and that actually has more wildflowers in it than the first did. But uh, Dr. Bell, I had the pleasure of interviewing him in uh, 2007 and had uh, written an article about him for Carolina Gardner Magazine, and he was fascinating. He was so generous with his time and, and so kind. And among the, the professors that we revere, that we think about, like um, B.W. Wells and the late J.C. Ralston and, and H.R. Uh, Totten and W.C. Coker, the giants of North Carolina horticulture, uh, C. Ritchie Bell was, was right there with them all. And he told me that his passion for gardening started when he was a little six-year-old boy sleeping on a sleeping porch. And um, his family gave him a, a window pane, and he went out in the garden, and they made a little box, and he put it on there and put some impatient seeds in, them and, in there, and they popped up in four days, and he was hooked. And from the time he was a little boy, uh, people would ask him, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he would say, a botanist. <laughs> And bring them back and grow them. 
you know, something that I, I would like to point out that I learned from, and you said his name, and I'm embarrassed, but what is Tom's last name? The, the, uh, Earnhardt. Earnhardt. I never can. I get his name confirmed. That's all right. But, um, he, put, he has a book called Crossroads of North Carolina, I think, and it has to do in part one of the, there are two crossroads, but one of them is the fact that North Carolina, in terms of latitude and longitude, is at a kind of crossroads, and that is it's sort of between zones, north and south, and because it goes from, as you pointed out earlier, from from the uh, sea level to, uh, say, 6,000 feet, it, it, it has families of plants that might be found only as far north as Canada, you know, if you're up in the high elevations of the of the uh, Appalachians, the Blue Ridge and the Black Mountains and so on, you, you you might have something that would only grow much further north, but it grows here because they've got the, the elevation, the height. And right. so that makes North Carolina, I think, a place that a lot of things will grow. And it's it's interesting because it's actually called, <laughs> this, is, this is what kind of tickled me is when I first uh, saw the term for it, most of North Carolina is considered a humid, subtropical climate. Now, they got that right. It's I'll go for the humid. <laughs> and the subtropical. Right. Um, but the mountains are considered a subtropical highland. And they that mountains, because of the, the high moist area, um, they, they get uh, a very good rainfall which helps certain plants that will grow nowhere where it's dry. Um, our acidic soils, our soils that are rich in iron, uh, this this place with all these rivers that we've got, the river basins and all that we've got going through North Carolina, it is it is unique. It is special. It really truly is. And can you um, can you stop right there? Sure. Can you take up again right after we take this break? We'll be glad to. Okay. That's right. You're good. You're becoming a radio person. We'll be back. 680. Soon to have a 96th birthday in September. Tonight, uh, we're live and in real time talking to Pam Beck, who is our, uh, let's say she's our uh, gardening, uh, grass growing, gardening, uh, not not gardening (laughs) in the sense of flowers, but gardening in the sense of tomatoes. We might have to talk about tomatoes sometime. Sometimes, Pam. <laughs> I'd rather not. The deer ate mine this year, so it hasn't okay. been very good. So you can year. tell I've lost my mind here. But uh, I know I know something's going on in the world because usually I, I, the people that I know who have gardens bring me lots of zucchinis for some reason. Yep, they, yep. they overgrow zucchinis. But I've just really enjoyed this tonight, and I've learned uh, several things that I did not know before. And you've allowed me to give it. But we have four or five minutes left, and. Uh, uh, oh, this is too short. There's so many great people I wanted to mention, and I must sometime come back and talk about the living um, people we have who are contributing still to the horticulture. And the, well, wait, hold on. You have an invitation. Oh, you have to do. We have to work it out. Okay, we'll do that. We'll have right. to work it out. But I would be, um, I would be remiss if I did not mention the late great. Dr. J.C. Ralston, probably one of the most influential people um, in North Carolina in, um, in recent memory. Dr. Ralston was a, a, a horticultural professor at NC State University. 
He started the botanical garden there in 1978 uh, when Gusta Hertog became head of the department. Then they decided it was time for NC State to have a, a garden. So they had a little eight acres out Barrel Road uh, next to where the research uh, greenhouses were. And they said, well, let's go ahead and see what we can do about creating this. And Dr. Ralston was a, a young man at this time, and he he uh, found that the single largest donation at the time uh, was given um, a grant from the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation was $15,000 for the garden construction. Now, that, it was just amazing. And then the Garden Clubs of North Carolina came forward, uh, a lot of students, uh, the nurserymen, the North Carolina Association of Nurserymen, they came forward because they were so excited uh, that this garden was going to be a garden of introducing new plants from around the world. So these were going to be plants that would be evaluated for their garden worthiness to see if they would be something that the homeowners would enjoy. So when you go and visit the garden that now carries Ralston's name since his passing, um, that this, this garden is full of things that you may not see anywhere else and you may not see in your local nursery for years and years and years because they are brand new. And they're uh, people who are the explorers, the, the Lawsons and the Bartrams of this day and time are going out into China and Korea, uh, the backwaters of Alabama, uh, and finding things and bringing them here and trying them and to see if they would grow. But Dr. Ralston was... was so influential because one of the things he did every year is he would give the nurserymen for free. He would give them bundles of plants that he had propagated from all these rare and wonderful things and say, grow them, go out, grow them, sell them, propagate them with no patents, no desire for any kind of kickback, just the generosity and the thrill of sharing these plants. And uh, there are great plants that we have in the trade now, some of them that he was directly responsible for. Um, one Ms. Of Pam, one Ms. Of his, Pam, yes. we have one minute left, and so I, uh, I, I, we are going to resume this right here. I've got right in the Please notes. Uh, she, was, you, she was talking about J.C. Ralston and plants in the trade, but we need <laughs> to, I want to see how you tell people where they operate them. It's free, isn't it? You can go it is see free. It. It's open, um, but it's closed right now because of COVID. But when it reopens, it's on Barrel Road, which is the road that runs uh, parallel to Hillsboro. It's out near the uh, fairgrounds, the North Carolina State Fairgrounds, and it's part of North Carolina State University and a wonderful place to visit. And the key word here, if you want to go there, is go far enough. And when you see the Waffle House, Crossed over, cross over the railroad, and you'll be on Barrel Road right there near Across Memphis. the Meredith University, right. There you go. Her name is Pam Beck. Uh, I just love having her here, and she is going to come back uh, tomorrow night. We're going to have a nostalgia night, and we'll talk to you then.